0: This talk was given at the Monastic Conference on the Environment, Gethsemane 3. It was given by Tataloka Bakuni. The title of her talk, Bad Practices, Hidden or Justified by Ideology. Hmm. So, um Uh, This morning's first presentation is uh, dedicated to the sacred heart of the highest loving-kindness, to the sacred heart that is unborn and undying, to its inspiration, to its practice in the past, and to its fulfillment in our lives. Could you speak a little bit louder, please? Is, very hard to hear. is there any way to make it louder? Mm-hmm. No? No, it's no. no, just, just only recording. recording. It's and not, not echoing. Echo. <laughs> Maybe if you stand up. So, uh, I'll try to project my voice. Uh, I come to you right now with uh, two environmental illnesses, uh, one of which is uh, strong at this moment. So, I'll try to speak loudly, but I may not be able to. Uh, shortly before coming here, very short time before, we had a fire at the old chemical plant that's uh, just across the railroad tracks from our monastery, very nearby, very big fire, and uh, the lead paint that was on it burned, and uh, uh, the things that were stored inside it, and there were many canisters of some kind of pressurized materials that were also exploding and popping, and uh, all of that came out in the smoke which settled down in our area. Our monastery, the windows are uh, not, it's not airtight. So I had called the fire department and asked if we should evacuate and was told, no, no, it's fine, you can stay. And uh, no no trouble. So we stayed for a little while and closed everything up, but then uh, the smoke became very, very thick and uh, came inside Uh, all of the buildings in our neighborhood so, uh, when the dizziness and uh, headache and uh, kind of breathing problem uh, started to appear, then we did evacuate, but not before there were it, physical consequences from that. So, myself and uh, many others in our, in our neighborhood uh, ended up then having some, some respiratory trouble, headaches, uh, pain, breathing, this type of thing, which I came here with. I wasn't sure if I would actually be uh, be well enough and healthy enough to come, although I wanted to very much. Um, so that, that happened to our entire neighborhood. So I think that might be considered a kind of uh, in environmental occurrence, yes. So being here in the open space and fresh air, the headaches and the breathing pain have been relieved. But then there's the second, which is Giardia, another <laughs> another environmental thing that may have, come back with me from India, where I was recently. And it seems to have started to come out a bit more strongly yesterday afternoon. So uh, excuse me for my weakness and my, uh, my smallness of voice. Uh, I'm very glad to be able to, uh, to speak anyway. I wasn't sure if it would be possible. And uh, to speak with a tremendous amount of compassion uh, through this experience for maybe all of us in this room uh, have some type of environmental sickness more or less that we may know about or probably don't know about as well as uh, the vast majority of us in our world at this time. So through this uh, this suffering or through this experience then I'm, I'm finding it very helpful to have, uh, to have compassion through the direct experience. So this is a nice way that uh, like out of the compost or uh, out of, out of the dung, of uh, of of what we've done, uh, something good can grow up out of it. So I hope very much also uh, that what I'm going to be speaking about today, as uh, it's probably the kind of subject that uh, that myself as a Buddhist monastic, probably the thing that I would least like to do is to be uh, to be critical about the Buddha's teaching. Uh, so uh, I hope very much that this may be dedicated also to what uh, any, any negativity that might be there or any, any harm that might be there or have been there, that, uh, that goodness rise out of that. Um, so to begin, um, how do you get it to come back on again? Touch anything. Okay, there we go. <clears throat> so I'm not going to be reading the paper as I don't read so well, but it will be available on the Wiki and I'm just going to be speaking. Um, the, the title uh, that I chose was Saffron and Green in the Clear Forest Pool The clear forest pool in Theravadan Buddhism and especially I think in in Thai forest tradition is an analogy for uh, a place in which we may reflect and uh, not only on what is superficial, on the reflection from the surface and on the surface itself, but to look deeply inside and see the various things that might be there uh, clearly and honestly. So the clear forest pool is uh, a place of coming for reflection, uh, to see whatever might be there. In this case, we're especially looking for uh, what's going on with our Buddhist monastic communities in the West. And our robes are often described as being various shades of saffron, saffron brown, whether golden saffron or orange saffron or rust saffron. Uh, So that's the saffron in the title, and the green, of course, is... uh, is for the environment. So I look at these two things together in the, the clear forest pool, the place of reflection. So I've been asked to speak about bad practices, uh, hidden or justified by ideology, and been reflecting that there are several kinds of ideology. There's the ideology that's generally agreed upon as being what the Buddha taught that we have in the uh, the Pali Canon, and the Agama Sutras, which most most of us think uh, is the original Buddhist teaching, and then later adaptations or developments on that teaching, uh, which we would say would be the, is it the the Zen schools and the Mahayana and uh, Vajrayana, uh, and everything that's being taught under the label of Buddhism you know, throughout history and uh, and to this day. And then there's the kind of ideology that is, is the idea that people have about Buddhism in our world at this time, even general people, what they think the Buddha taught, what they think this is all about, that, that idea. We would also say in, in popular terms, whether rightly or wrongly, that that is a kind of Buddhist ideology in our world, uh, in the popular mind, whether it's really properly what the Buddha taught or not. So we have those, uh, those different types of ideology. So to look into this question of what might be the bad practices hidden or justified by ideology within our American Buddhist monastic communities, I brought the question to something called Insight Forum. Insight Forum is uh, an e-Buddhist community in our San Francisco Bay Area However, actually, it has members from around the world. So I posed this question to Insight Form for the sake of raising consciousness within our Buddhist community of, of this question and what people thought, to see what people thought. Um, there are monastics and people who say they're Buddhist and many people who don't say they're Buddhist who are part of this community, but just to see what they thought, to, uh, is it, to bring about contemplation and reflection of what there might be. So during this last month, I received feedback through that forum from a very large number of people about this question of what there is. Many of them said that they'd never thought of it before and that it's very hard to think of anything. They thought that Buddhism is very good in this regard and, and until they actually spent more time thinking about it, they hadn't, hadn't ever thought of anything critical in this regard. Now I felt a little bit sorry for being kind of like the, what is it, devil's advocate? No, I <laughs> don't for for asking people to bring about their critical thinking in, in one regard, but on the other hand, I feel it's very much in line with what the Buddha taught. And the reason for that is in fundamental Buddhist teaching that uh, is shared by all Buddhist schools. That is related to the Four Noble Truths, which all of you may be familiar with, I hope. The Four Noble Truths and uh, related to the, the fourth truth, which is the, the truth of the path, the truth of the path of practice, particularly. You may have seen this illustrated as Dhamma wheel uh, with eight spokes. This is commonly used as a Buddhist symbol, and it's, uh, those eight spokes are the, the, the spokes of the Noble Eightfold Path uh, with um, mindfulness and clear awareness being right at the center as well as one of the spokes. So the sixth spoke, does anyone here know what that is? Right off? The sixth spoke is right effort. So within, uh, within right <laughs> effort, very fundamental Buddhist <coughs> teaching shared by all Buddhist schools, uh, we find actually in the definition of right effort which I'm going to show you here. I hope that you're able to see it. Oh. So this is the, uh, this is the definition of, oops, of, of right effort. So I have to start here at the bottom of the page. And uh, as I don't see well on my left side, please let me know if what you're seeing is not what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so I think this should be about right effort. Uh, the, the operative scheme of right effort is fourfold so I'm not sure if everyone is familiar with this, uh, but this is the fourfold scheme, which I think is important to look at here because this isn't just playing devil's advocate, but uh, this, is, uh, this process is very much something that is fundamental in the path of practice that the Buddha calls us to and uh, asks all those who would practice this path uh, to, uh, to engage in, uh, not only now and then, but actually uh, regularly, uh, diligently, ardently. So it begins that we should generate desire, endeavor, activate persistence, uphold and exert our intent in four things. The first, the non-arising of whatever evil, unskillful qualities have not yet arisen to prevent evil from arising. The second, the reduction and cessation of whatever evil, unskillful qualities have already arisen. Third, the causing and arising of skillful qualities that have not yet arisen. Fourth, the maintenance, non-confusion, increase, plentitude, development and culmination of skillful qualities that have already arisen. So, there's a definition of, uh, you can see how evil is defined here, if you're able to read, read the board. And uh, it is exactly uh, these evil or unskillful things that we would call the bad practices that we're looking for. So we actually are uh, within the Four Noble Truths and the Sixth Spoke of Right Effort. Uh, in, uh, in the Noble Eightfold Path, we're actually called to really look for these things and to work with them in a very proactive way. So this is completely (coughs) orthodox Buddhist teaching here. This is actually quoted directly out of the uh, Magga Vibhanga Sutta or the analysis of the path that the Buddha taught uh, in Theravadan teaching. So you can see some of the the definition there. This is the basic operating framework of right effort. And it assumes uh, that there is also development of the other path factors of uh, Uh, Right view relating to cause and effect, in order that we have an understanding of what is evil or skillful. uh, The development of, on the other hand, the development of mindfulness and clear awareness. uh, So that we may be able to uh, understand the context that we're in. Because something is helpful and beneficial in one context, but not in another. Something is harmful in one context, but not in another. So, it's very important to have mindfulness and clear awareness then of, uh, of what, what our context is, to know what might be wise and skillful in a given situation. So, these are things that we all want to do all the time, right? I think every living being, uh, every human being, would like to uh, reduce the things that seem harmful or uh, uh, discomforting uh, or to be causing suffering and to, to increase and bring to fulfillment the things that bring our, our happiness, our ease, our well-being, our peace, our comfort. Uh, so this is just a skillful outline for how to do, uh, how to look at and how to do the things that maybe every single one of us, uh, I would say even animals, would like to do that. That is to avoid pain and suffering and to be peaceful, comfortable and happy. Um, So, um, in in the topic, uh, we have the things that are hidden or, or, or justified by ideology. But, um, in the answers that I received, both through Insight Forum and from, uh, from mentors and friends in the monastic life from around the world, those who are in the United States and also those who are, are looking at at what's happening with our American Buddhist monastic communities in North America, from the outside, I felt it was important to get the perspective from the outside as well, as that's often uh, illuminating. We may see things differently from the inside and the outside. So the answers that I got fall into uh, into two basic categories. I'm not going to be speaking so much about my own thoughts on the subject, as they've really. Well, they've really actually developed out of, uh, out of reading and listening to the feedback that's come uh, on, on this. So that's what I'm going to be presenting. The first category uh, actually falls very nicely into what is hidden. In this case, uh, not hidden by the ideology itself, but the ideology becoming, uh, or I would say, properly what the Buddha taught, becoming hidden by other ideas about what that teaching is. So this would be the hidden part. And this relates to misunderstandings of, uh, of what the Buddha taught. And I'd like to go into uh, this, this category of misunderstandings. Uh, in the feedback that I received, the, by far, the most, most common, most prevalent feedback was related to apathy, to complacency. There is the idea out there, connected to the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, that the Buddha taught that life is suffering, and that's it. That that is the truth, the one and only truth, and that there's nothing nothing else, nothing other than that. So this idea is out there, not only is it out there amongst general people, but I'd say that there are even those in our Buddhist monastic communities who have, who have this idea. Never mind about the, uh, the, the second truth of the suffering having causes, or the third truth that those causes, if they're not brought to arising or if they're brought to cessation, that they may end, and thus that suffering may end. Never mind about the fourth truth, that there's a path of practice, which is what the Buddha actually moved himself out of his very deep and blissful meditation after enlightenment for, and walked barefoot for for how many years, living on alms food and exerting himself for the welfare of, of humanity continuously, day after day, just for the sake of teaching this, uh, this this path of practice. Of course, there were those who understood very, very quickly so we don't see that they practice so much because they're already ripe they're already very ready just like just the just something that you touch very briefly and then it falls because it's already already like a like a tree from uh, from what is it and and the fruit falling you know just just walking underneath it and the fruit just falls because it's ready it's ripe already the the conditions are already there but uh, the path is uh, compared, to, uh, compared to one that is to be cultivated, like a farmer who actually may plant the seed and then care for it, uh, give it proper water, fertilizer, take out the weeds, really care for it well so that it can grow up well. And uh, then naturally, naturally, out of that cultivation, according to nature, then the flowers come, the fruit grows, and it falls by itself. Well, that's dependent on causes and conditions. If that seed isn't cared for, if it's not nurtured, if the water isn't given, if the weeds are allowed to take over or entangling vines come up, then even the very small tree, of course, may may not grow and uh, the blossoms may not be seen, nor the fruit, the fruit may not fall, nor may it be eaten. Right? So. Um, um, neglecting the cultivation or the path of practice, then the fulfillment of this path for which the Buddha taught, it may not be seen so much. If people don't do that and it's not seen, then it can even disappear from the idea that people have of what is Buddhism and, and what did the Buddha teach. And then we have the prevalent idea that there's only life is suffering. That's it. One noble truth only, not four. <laughs> no, no cause of suffering, no end of suffering, and no, no path of practice to the cessation of suffering. So these things, the factors that we were, that we were looking at before uh, here, um, this, this is very much about, about the effort to be made in the path of practice. It's a definition of it. This is something that actually many people, although it's fundamental in Buddhist teaching, many people know very very little about. Uh, lots of people haven't even heard about right effort, although they've certainly heard about suffering. So we would call this uh, a misunderstanding. And in Buddhist teaching, uh, it is fundamental, as you saw in uh, Ajahn Punadamo's illustration of dependent origination that ignorance or misunderstanding about what's actually going on and about what can be done that 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 misunderstanding would be there in the arising of suffering. So it's actually uh, really reasonable to expect that there would be a misunderstanding underlying this situation. Considering the number of Buddhists in the world, now we have, in 2004, I think, the uh, U.S. Department of something, said <laughs> 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 so that there were 5.6 million Buddhists. Maybe I can find the department. Uh, 5.6 million, so it's not like that there are you know, just, you know, just a very, very few Buddhists. <laughs> Uh, but there are actually quite, quite a lot in this area, in this country. The number of Buddhist monasteries is on the rise. They're, they're around the world. Uh, so it, it's not that uh, this, these types of misunderstandings have no effect in the society. They very much do. They very much do. So the Venerable Ajahn Pasano, he was one of the, one of the people who I asked about this. And his answer to this question also falls into this category. You may have heard of him spoken of uh, earlier on as the co-abbot of Abhayagiri, and an elder uh, Canadian monk in Thai forest tradition who's been very active in environmentalism in Thailand. And uh, I think his monastery is uh, quite exemplary uh, as far as carbon footprint is concerned, although I haven't seen the numbers crunched. So I asked him about this as I've considered him a teacher for, for quite a long time now and I respect him highly. His answer within the uh, misunderstandings category, if I jump down here to the underlying views and intentions that move us, uh, his answer was that what comes up are the themes of misrepresenting the teachings and intentions of the Buddha through such things as equanimity being seen as indifference, relinquishing of desire as an excuse for non-action, karma being interpreted as everyone deserves what they get, so why do anything about it, and contentment being used as a reason for complacency. So all of these things tend into, uh, into a particular category, uh, indifference, uh, non non action complacency, uh, they also they all fall into the category of uh, uh, apathy, I think. Apathy in Buddhism, this type of apathy or complacency, is considered one of the uh, uh, one of the hindrances, niwarana, uh, the hindrance of sloth and torpor. That's one of the main things that prevents our practice. Uh, in our development of the spiritual path. Actually, uh, I did a talk on uh, this particular hindrance recently and did some research, and it seems that the Christian doctrine of the seven deadly sins is related uh, to this Buddhist teaching of the five hindrances, because lust, desire and lust is there, Uh, ill will is there, sloth and torpor is there. Uh, the, The list is actually very, very similar, and uh, another name that this is known by is, uh, these, these hindrances are the armies of Mara. That is, uh, they, are, uh, they are called uh, the, the forces of the devil, or uh, what, what brings us to death. So it said that those who are heedful and mindful, uh, that those, uh, those realize the deathless. Those that are heedless, those that are complacent, are as if, as if dead already that is they come under the dominion of mara so most of the responses that i received fall under this category that is uh, i'll give you a specific example that actually happened on the uh, on the very day that i was writing this paper one of the women who's come to our monastery to enter into monastic life, she's a postulant right now, her son called on the telephone during the time that I was writing. He called on the telephone and he was actually, coincidentally, feeling frustrated about what was happening with the environment. He was feeling depressed. He's feeling concerned. He's a young man now and uh, feeling hopeless about the world and he told his mom, who is a postulant now, he said, but that's just what the Buddha taught, isn't it? Life is suffering. And because I'm attached, so I'm suffering too, and the only thing to do is to let go. Just let it go. That's what he said. This is a child of of a Buddhist parent. So it's partly true, yes, but incompletely not complete. It's like looking at, uh, looking at maybe the first, even the second and third uh, noble, noble truths, but in a very incomplete way and minus the fourth noble truth of the path of practice, which is where all of this comes to life. The reason again that the Buddha uh, moved from his seat of enlightenment and taught for so many years. The reason that we have these volumes of uh, volumes of texts, the reason that all of us are, are here today. You know, if it hadn't been for that, there would be no monastic sankha and there would not be people experiencing the benefits of this path of practice, which is where the benefits are found. So I think that just about covers the, uh, the, first, uh, the first part that is about the, uh, about the misunderstandings. I'd actually like to uh, review uh, very, very briefly before leaving this section, um, just review something that the Buddha said, if I can find it, uh, related to this subject. So this is from the very first teaching to the first disciples, the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana Sutta, also known as uh, Turning the Wheel of the Dhamma. This is a quote from it, where the Buddha is describing his own enlightenment experience. So the qualities of vision, of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding, and of light arising are how he he defined the experience of enlightenment. So he says that, uh, that vision arose, knowledge arose, wisdom arose, understanding arose, and light arose within me regarding things never heard before. This noble truth of the path of practice leading to the end of suffering is to be developed. So that's right there in the very first teaching. It's just part of it. There's more. There's a whole lot more. It has the the whole framework of the four noble truths and the eightfold path is right there inside it. This is just just one sentence from it. That's the turning the wheel of the Dhamma uh, Sutta. So after saying that, the Buddha goes on to say that this path of practice has been fully developed by him, and in fully developing that path of practice, that he has uh, realized, realized enlightenment, what is uh, uh, what he what he spoke of as the ending of all suffering. So this is the the right basis of Buddhist faith and optimism not only a type of faith that's just to be believed in, but very clearly the type of faith and optimism that is to be put into practice. Of course, there is the time to put aside all thoughts of anything, past, future, concerns for the world, really to bring the mind inside and to go deep into meditation for the sake of purifying the heart burning off the hindrances, including burning off the hindrances of sloth and torpor, burning off the complacency through our ardency, in deep meditation, and doing this, this practice of purifying our heart, then also our view may be purified, light may arise, and then for ourselves as well, when we open our eyes and move our bodies and move our lips, our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Then they may be further uh, further purified, our view elevated, freed from the fires of hatred, lust, and greed, clear of the dark and obscuring smoke of delusion. So the delusion part is a very, very difficult part. That is to know, to be able to see and know what is harmful and what is skillful. And then the complacency part and the obstruction and the binding of that. In Pali, the words for it means something slimy, like you've, you've gotten pulled into quicksand or you've gotten stuck in a, some very, stepped into some very, very serious chewing gum that you've just <laughs> really got very, got, and not only your feet, but everything gets bound up in it, and then you can't move, you can't act. Sometimes you can't even breathe, right? When people get into that state, they, even they feel like they can't live, they can't die, I've had people say, because they feel so strongly obstructed. Yes? So very important to do what is to be done to purify that, to clear that up, to burn that off. That's essential in this. So we go from the very beginning of the Buddha's teaching to its end, to the very last words that the Buddha spoke when he was dying in the Mahapari Nibbana Sutta. Very last words here that we have recorded, at least in the Pali Canon, Kayawaya Dhamma Sankara Apamadena Sampadetha. It's been translated variously. I've adapted Ajantanisra's translation here that phenomenal things are subject to passing away, become consummate through non complacency. This is his very last words to the disciples who were gathered around him. So this is also often translated, the very last words as strive on with diligence. So, this isn't a, a, a directive to the disciples to go out and, uh, and convert people as quickly as possible, but a directive to be heedful and to take care, to really take care of what needs to be done. It's related to, uh, related to the path of practice, and yes, also to its sharing. So we see that from the very first teaching to the very last teaching, there was this exhortation, in right effort, with the qualities of awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, appreciation, equanimity and release, the very antithesis of the deadness, apathy and complacency that was by far the foremost and primary objection to Buddhist ideology. So we see that this is an ideology that appears in popular thought in the minds of people. But what we find from the very first teaching to the very last teaching of the Buddhas (coughs) is not this. So to know when to act and when not to act, this uh, this is considered wisdom or skill and means. We're asked first to purify our intentions as all action is based on intention and that is fundamentally important but then we have to be able to act on the intentions and that, that relates to what we call the higher training. The higher training in uh, immorality, in, in, in ethics and virtue, and to be able to think and speak and act with virtue. Uh, the higher training in meditation, the higher training in wisdom, which relates to uh, this, this putting it into action, relates to wisdom and skillful means. Uh, so that, that skillful means is something that we heard about before. Someone was speaking about this. In fact, it's been mentioned several times. That is the upaya or upaya kosala. Kosala means what is, what is wholesome. It's the antithesis of evil in expression. So these are fundamental parts of the, of the higher training. This is something that I've heard often in a prayer that I don't know if it's Christian or not, but the serenity prayer related to wisdom. That is knowing when, having the wisdom to know when to act and when not to act. So for this, actually, um, we have the teaching that supports right effort. Right next to it, the teaching in mindfulness and clear comprehension. Clear comprehension, or full awareness, is defined as knowing what is wholesome and unwholesome, number one. Number two, in the context, time, place and person. Number three, knowing the resources within the teaching that we have to bring to the situation, uh, our resort. In our monastic life, we consider that. Uh, we have our, our physical food and our mental food, yes? The resort would be would be our <laughs> mental food, but meant to burn up defilements, uh, knowing how to bring the teaching uh, into that situation in a way that matches, and then this causes uh, non-confusion, non-delusion, which is the, the antithesis of the ignorance. So that's called full awareness, having full awareness. So it's related to, uh, related to wisdom. This is also very fundamental in the Eightfold Path, in the teaching on mindfulness, right, mindfulness. Mindfulness and full awareness, or mindfulness and clear comprehension, which is also called presence. Not just a passive presence, just being aware, but being aware of specific things, so that we can put them into action in our karmas of body, speech, and mind. So I'd like to move out of this section and go to the specifics. This is the other part: specific things that people uh, people complained about, uh, or or mentioned, or saw in the uh, in the Clear Forest Pool. Uh, that that didn't look so well. This isn't a personal list. This is a a reporting list of the feedback that I've got. The very first amongst practical things that people thought, both monastics and laypeople, thought it was questionable that monastics or uh, American Buddhist monasteries would be engaged in in the way that they are. The very first is international and national jet travel and car travel uh, related to the carbon imprint. The second is the use of existing waste management systems, which, for a person with the eye to cause and effect and what's happening over the long term, doesn't look so good. Not nearly as good as uh, Ajahn Sona said is the Sri Lankan Buddhist monastery from how long ago? Twenty-three hundred years. Twenty-three hundred years ago. So, this development of our modern technology is not necessarily progressive. Yes. Hmm, where did that come from? Fortunately, we haven't lost the knowledge of it entirely, and a lot of it is preserved within our monastic communities, fortunately. So the use of existing electrical systems, the use of imported products offered as alms for pollution and waste, the use of chemical dyes for dyeing robes for pollution, the acceptance of non-vegetarian food as alms, because of the indirect harm towards other living beings, pollution, and wasteful use of resources. Oops. The acceptance of more alms food than is needed for the monastic community. Again, a waste of resources. The use of non-environmentally friendly requisite products offered as alms. This is related to pollution and waste. The use of non-environmentally friendly cleaning products in monasteries. Pollution and harmfulness to health. The development of monasteries using non-environmentally skillful technologies for pollution and waste, that is not using solar wind or water energy or water recycling systems or making buildings with high roofs due to gloriousness that waste heat energy. The use of already existing unskillful, harmful technologies. So I've chosen... um, I've chosen one topic to look at specifically, but I'm not sure about the amount of, amount of time that I have to do it. Yeah. So I may speak about it um, really, really briefly. Um, Venerable Hungshur spoke about our monastic discipline. I don't know if any of you have heard that in our monastic discipline, uh, the use of vehicles by fully ordained Buddhist monastics is not allowed. The Buddha walked and... Uh, Um, and other monastics walked in the Buddha's lifetime, and that was maintained for a very long period of time. The reason for that, uh, our monastic discipline specifically mentions uh, animal or human-drawn vehicles. So we think now, okay, these vehicles are not, not harming any animals or human beings, not making them our slaves, so it's all right to use them. The monastic discipline does mention the unavoidable harming of insect life and other small creatures, which, of course... Uh, cars and other forms of transportation it's very hard to avoid that as we can see uh, as illustrated on the windshield and front bumper uh, that that very much may and regularly does happen so that happens but um, in the last now in this last period of time monastic communities have largely gone over to uh, to using using cars trains uh, buses uh, and jet travel but Uh, And and we thought basically that this is not harmful. And uh, it's justified by the (coughs) Buddha's teaching of gathering together often in harmony, exerting ourselves if we have any level of realization or understanding of this path that can be shared with others to their benefit, to even be willing to go far and wide to share that with them. There are these things there. And for ourselves as practitioners also to be willing to even go far and wide to sacrifice our personal comfort to seek out good teachers and good environments for practicing the path. These things are very much present in the Buddha's teaching and they have justified the use of these vehicles and a lot of international uh, and national jet travel. Of course logically it seems that uh, it would be far better to have one teacher uh, fly halfway around the world than to have all of the students fly to meet the teacher. I mean, there certainly are considerations there. I've written a little bit at length about the walker's practice and the benefit that I've found in it myself. My own novice preceptor never got in a vehicle in his entire life. He died in uh, 2001. Uh, He lived in in South Korea and uh, he walked the old mountain pathways. Is very strict about the Vinaya, the monastic discipline, which said very simply, uh, not riding in vehicles, which is what he learned as a young monk, and he didn't do it. Um, he was a preceptor for many, so it, it was felt important that he keep the monastic discipline uh, purely and unquestionably. So that's something that, uh, that, that he didn't do. Uh, and that's, that's an inspiration to me. It's been an inspiration as of have the monastics in Thai forest tradition There are still a large number of monastics, although not a huge number. And the tradition is changing. But those who take the the walking practice as a kind of a a voluntary austerity, one of the types of austerities allowed by the Buddha within the scheme of middle way practice, that is not going to extremes, uh, not to the extreme of self-mortification. And I've done this myself. I was very inspired to hear yesterday about Peace Pilgrim and to learn more about her walking. Uh, We also have Venerable Jyoti Palo, who is now maybe staying with Ajahn Pune in Thunder Bay, in Canada, and uh, Venerable Hung Shur, who is here. Uh, The Reverend Hung Shur undertook a very long period of walking practice called for by his Master. That's something that's been inspiring to many people. And if we listen to him talk about it, please ask him about it, and ask what the effect was on his practice and his cultivation and his purity of heart. And intention and in being able to have the strength, the courage, and the integrity to manifest that. I would say, as I've known him for some time now, that that's a very kind of fundamental thing that, that has been uh, really, really significant in his practice. I've also undertaken walking, uh, not only in the wilderness, but in the very heart of the San Francisco Bay Area through Silicon Valley a hundred miles, without car, taking only what alms food was offered. And I found it a very, very extraordinary experience, especially to be a walker uh, for that period of time, amidst the cars and all of the speeding people. I could see it in a way that I had never saw it before. So I'd like to highly commend and highly recommend that practice for the sake of uh, purification of the heart, for being a great example Uh, a counter-cultural example. Uh, Many of the people who saw us, in my personal experience, were greatly inspired, and they did what was done even 2,500 years ago. That is, they gathered in the parks where we stopped to listen to the Dhamma. They walked together with us. It was quite an incredible thing, done two years ago, just around Memorial Day, as a dedication to all those who have ever suffered violence. So, stop. Mm. So, um, let's see. Uh, I'm going to, while wrapping it up, uh, mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. wrap-up, there are a number of things that Ajahn Sona mentioned briefly in our monastic discipline that actually counter the things uh, that are on the list here our monastic discipline specifically mentions uh, for, for the monastics to have great care and respect for what they put out of monasteries, that is uh, to uh, not, uh, not pollute the earth, not pollute the green, not pollute the, uh, the water uh, with, our, with our physical and material waste. So that precedent is very much there. As also mentioned, not using more than we need in terms of lodging Uh, or or making our lodgings in a way that harm other forms of life. And uh, lastly, as a dedication to one of the the main mentors in my monastic life, um, there's a very, uh, seen as a very small precept about using the restroom. But it extends far beyond that. If we go to a restroom, that is, it's about eliminating our bodily waste, yes? We're supposed to leave the restroom, not supposed to leave the restroom until it is uh, at least as clean as when we entered, if not cleaner. As a monastic practice of diligence, we're actually regularly supposed to leave it cleaner than when we entered. So this is a basic principle in our monastic discipline, in our monastic life, that is as clean as or cleaner than when we entered. This also extends to our use of monastic lodgings whatever we do in the monastery, what we do when we enter lay homes or go into villages, that so actually extends to, uh, to every every aspect of our monastic life. So the mentor who I'm speaking about, Ajahn Mahaprasert, asked me specifically to mention that point as he feels that if we do anything but that, it is counter fundamental and basic Buddhist principles of gratitude and respect, which are, at the essence of the heart of the path for both Buddhist monastics and for all those who practice in this way. I'd say that that's something that we share. So being in robes, we are an example. What we do has a profound impact on how others understand those who have inspired us and the way that they lived. It is their vision of the path of practice. So I feel that it's very important for each one of us to not only take our good intentions, but really uh, to see how we can be uh, how we can be fearless, how we can have uprightness, how we can purify our morality and integrity, that uh, we we not only have these good intentions, but obstructed, but that we be able to uh, bring these good intentions into our path of practice and manifest them to our fulfillment, to their complete fulfillment. That is bringing about a vision of the nobleness of the path a vision of enlightenment for the people of our society and our world today, not only for our own hearts, of course, that's essential for us, and for the well-being and the hearts of our monastic communities. So thank you very much for listening, and I'm sorry thank for you. speaking too long. <laughs> thank you.